We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. Podcast. Happy birthday to This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. Happy birthday to us. It's our seventh birthday. We are seven. If you're wondering what the hell was that intro, uh, you can go back and look through history. There's a famous um, a, f- a famous video of John F. Kennedy having happy birthday sung to him by Marilyn Monroe, which is what I was aping there. I don't think I quite nailed it. But the point is, it is our birthday, and we get to celebrate by talking about a win and some really beautiful goals uh, from players who are not yet seven years old themselves, or at least remember their seventh birthday, which I clearly do not. So it is my delight, my pleasure, to say hello to Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stoberto and say happy seventh birthday, Tim. Hello there. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I, That's it. I, 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 I feel and look and indeed am quite a bit older than that, though. Maybe podcast years are like dog years. So seven, maybe 49. Do you feel a little bit like 49? Uh, yeah, closer. Okay. We're somewhere in, somewhere between seven and 49. We find Tim Stillman. And Clive, you can find him on Twitter, Clive PFC. Happy birthday, Clive. Hello, hello, and happy birthday to you. Oh, feels like a special day. I'm, I should go out for a drink. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I have no doubt you shall. Uh, do you feel closer to seven or 49? Oh, 49 would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is, by the way, also my father's birthday, his 80th birthday. Uh, so happy birthday, Dad. I love you very much. And uh, a very special birthday for him. So podcast birthday, Dad's birthday, and a win. Gosh, it's all happening. It's all kicking off. And we're here to discuss it. I do want to let you know, a busy, busy week from a hashtag content standpoint, because we'll have stuff on the Patreon side, as we often do in the midweek, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, We will have a pre-match live stream for the United game, and it looks like we will have a live watch party for the United game using new technology from um, a really fun company that was founded by a guy who happens to be a patron. So what is this community, if not 
people helping people, Arsenal fans helping Arsenal fans. So the only downside to that is the new technology being new. You will be able to watch the game and see us and hear us all at the same time, all in the same stream, but it's limited to 200 people. So we're going to figure out how to make that work without it feeling just like some random, uh, you know, crush of trying to get onto a stream and it crashes and it doesn't work. We'll, we'll figure something out. But <clears throat> as that grows, that could be something fun that we'll do more of. And then we'll have a, a post-match podcast on Friday. So a full week of hashtag content, a big week, an important week, um, and certainly a game that we always anticipate anxiously. But it's not time to discuss that yet. It's time to look back on the game that was, the weekend that was, and I think a good weekend for us, and hilariously for Spurs who don't even get to play football anymore. They're so bad at football that they just stopped letting them play it. It is about time, if you ask me. So, Tim, I think this is a game that is about Mikel Arteta in some ways and not about him at all in other ways. And I will explain my thesis there and then let you say something coherent that makes the podcast successful. I think everybody would have understood him choosing Tierney, him choosing Maitland-Niles, you know, or an El Nenny, a, a change from two players who maybe struggled under the pressure in the second half against Liverpool and made key errors that cost us the game, but who had otherwise been playing well and are otherwise important in the future. I think everyone would have understood when Saka comes off with an injury, Nicola Pepe slides right in, but no, it's a chance for Martinelli, and that, that faith is repaid. I think all the faith was repaid across the board with those decisions. So he sticks with his guns. He sticks with the players that he has had the faith in, and he's repaid for that. But the way I think it is not about Arteta, and we'll maybe get to this a little later, is that his job, and a lot of coaches have said this, is to deliver them to the final third, and their job is to solve the problem in the final third. And that's where the talent takes over. So a a day for him to make decisions that I think are really brave and repaid, and a day for the players to solve the problems which they do. Let's start with the first one, Tim. I'm really happy with the decisions he made, and I don't mean that in hindsight. (laughs) I think the message it sends to these new players that he will stand by them. I think on Mikel Arteta two seasons ago, goes back to tyranny, goes to an El Nenny over a Sambi after what happened at Anfield. He didn't do that. How do you feel about those decisions specifically? Yeah, very, very much so. Um, I very much agree. So I, I even, I tweeted about it before the game um, that I said, you know, I wasn't necessarily expecting that. I wouldn't have wanted his head on a pike if he hadn't done that. Um, but I, I was pleased with it because I could follow the logic because the decisions were obviously linked. Um, <clears throat> and like you said, a, a lot of it was about, you know, don't worry about Anfield, like it happens and it doesn't, you know, I, I won't judge you as a player uh, if you make a mistake. And to be fair, something very similar happened um, at the be- right at the beginning of his reign. I remember being at a press conference, I think it was before we played Sheffield United at home in January 2020. And it was when Mustafi made a big error against Chelsea. It was when David Luiz was sent off for a professional foul. I know that doesn't narrow things down. Um, but Mustafi badly underhit a back pass, and I think Hudson Odoi went through on goal, and Louise took him out. And um, and I remember at that point, we all, myself included, were like, "Well, that's Mustafi done. That this was his last chance. He's done for now. He's not coming back in." And he did, and he played the next few games. And uh, I was at the press conference um, before we played Sheffield United about ten days after that happened, and someone asked him about that. And he said, for me, it's, it's not about players making errors. It's about the response 
to errors. That's what I'm interested in. He said players will make mistakes, but what I liked in Mustafi was after he made that mistake, he carried on playing, he carried on being brave, he carried on doing the things that I'd asked him to do. And that I think is something that's very important to Arteta is to like not chastise so much for errors, but really to reward the response to that. And he even referenced it in the scouting of Aaron Ramsdale. He said something about um, one thing that him and the, the kind of scouting team looked at very closely was what does this guy do five minutes after he misplaces a pass or concedes a goal or, or even makes a big mistake? What's his behaviour? And he he said that he was massively impressed by Ramsdale because he just carried on doing, you know, some of those kind of high risk actions that are really rewarding as well. So I think we know those things are important to Arteta. Um, I'm curious as to uh, whether he was, you know, maybe this time last week in the wake of the Liverpool game, maybe he was thinking, mm, I could go back to Tierney and I could play Maitland-Niles around any. Um, but, may, you know, I'm sure he looked closely at the re- reaction in training as well. I'm sure he put a lot of stock in that. And that's another, um, I guess, a plus side of having a week between games at the moment. He gets he gets a good chance to assess this. He get you know, you've got four or five good training sessions of those players in and, and I'm I'm sure he assessed them there. But I, I kind of agree that um you know this this was a medium term decision as much as a short term decision. I think we still would have beaten Newcastle if we played Tierney at left back yeah. and Maitland Niles in midfield. So I d I don't think um, I mean, it did have a bearing on the result, like because they both played really well, those players, and Tavares sets up the first goal in particular. But I, I, th- I think it was about the kind of the medium term thinking, just like putting Martinelli on for Pepe. That was about you know more medium to long term thinking, and about more than the game in front of him. And I, I agree. I was, I was, I was really, really pleased with it. And um, and I, I know we'll come on to this later <clears throat> about what maybe happened in the last twenty minutes of the game. So I won't, I won't go into that now. But like some, there are some things Arteta's doing and saying that are causing me to revisit some of my assumptions about him. Um, and I'll give you another example after the Palace game. You know, one of my frustrations was, God, why did we stop playing when we went one 0 up? And then he came out in his press conference afterwards and said. I, I really didn't like that. I didn't like that we stopped playing. We need to we need to keep going. We need to keep these teams under pressure. And and so I kind of rethought it and thought, okay, this tendency to sit back, it's more on the players at the moment than Arteta. And um and, and I, I know you said this in the instant reaction pod as well. I, I do think there's a distinction this season. Um, and I'm not saying Arteta hasn't learned because I think he has, but also these are his young players. <clears throat> these are young players that he bought. So yeah. if the choice was maybe for Joe, if Joe Willock makes um, a mistake at Anfield last season, he probably doesn't come back in because he's not quite Arteta's guy, whereas Lokonga is, Tavares is. And I think one thing that's been really obvious since the close of the transfer window is Arteta has drawn a very distinct line in the sand between who the future of this team is and who it isn't, and rightly so in my opinion. Yeah, I mean... You can understand why a coach gives a longer leash to and has more patience with players he chose, players he brought in, players he sees as the future of his project. And I mean, I'm not saying that Arteta doesn't like Kieran Tierney, far from it. But Nuno Tabrez is a guy he agreed to bring in, wanted to bring in, I, th- I would presume, and has been eager to play and eager to stick with. And I, you know, I- I'll go further. You know, you said, I'm not saying we wouldn't have won if we played 
Tierney and Maitland-Niles. Maybe we would have won. Maybe we would have won even more heavily. But the important point is for young players who made mistakes in a big spot to be trusted again to come in to the Emirates and play really well in a win. It just it, it makes such a difference. It is such a big thing for their career and their progression. I think that he did that, and and so I'm so glad he did. Clive, you know, you and I had a chance to have a. I think it's fair to say inebriated discussion about this game on the instant reaction <laughs> that I recommend everybody listen to. There's, there's a, by the way, would, would you say it's fair that over the past seven years we've had some heated debates that have elicited some angry response? Who, me and you? No, I mean, just the podcast in general. Oh, yeah, podcast in general. Right. I was heated for us. We're not massively yeah, yeah. heated, no. are we? So, uh, yeah. but, but I would say that the most angry, heated response I've ever received to any debate we've ever had on the podcast is when I referred to the things that bob up and down in the water that boats go past as a buoy (laughs) and was told by Paul that it's actually pronounced boy. And this this has resulted in just an outrageous level of of vitriol and anger and and debate. And it is really just a, a ethnocentricity issue, I think, because let's face it, Americans speak differently. Now, some would say worse, and some would say not worse, but it is different. And, and I, I do want to say, you probably pronounce it boy, right? Yep. We can live together. Now, the point has been made to me that the word buoyancy is where that word boy comes from. problem is, if I said boy to someone here, they would assume I was talking about a small human, a small male human. But buoy is what we call it here. It's what it's called here. There are movies in America that you can watch where they say this word. I'm not making this up. So uh, you can go to Google and it's funny. It gives the option to pronounce it in British English or American English. If American English is such a thing, some people say it's not a thing. It is a thing. It's buoy. So please reserve your anger, your vitriol. We have bigger fish to fry, but if we ever go boating together and I say, look out, we're going to hit that buoy. Don't stop and turn around and say, you mean boy, just (laughs) drive around the buoy. For goodness sake. All right, Clive, I'm glad I got that off my chest. Um, the selection is great, but, but I want to talk more about the attacking style. I think the criticism of Arteta that predominated the, the discourse early on was a conservatism. And he has shown now, I think against Watford a bit, and definitely against Newcastle, that when teams don't want the ball, he's willing to play without a net. Tomiyasu's average position in this game very different than what we've seen in the past. Both fullbacks pushed up. And you have a theory on why we're able to do this, but this is something we would not have done earlier in Arteta's reign. But this game, 65, 66% possession, a lot of territory, a lot of defensive actions in the attacking third. We pushed them back and we kept them back in part because we were willing to play without a net. So what do you think has changed that allowed us to do this in this game that maybe is a reason we didn't do it in the past? There's lots of things going on here, and I think when we're analysing football, there's the the top three games versus you know who, and there's there's the rest. And I think this is one of the rest games. And I think what's developing again throughout the season, I think will balances will change, players' roles will change, and there's a constant search for balance, partnerships, relationships, and really looking at a player and understanding what their primary skill set is and how can I make them feel comfortable. This is a constant, constant evolution, right? So, and players then develop on you positionally. They develop on you body-wise. What they like to do is they become more comfortable. And you always got to look at that and see, right? So, um, 
in this game, uh, it doesn't take long to realise. It's really, funny enough, I missed the podcast last week, and whenever I miss a podcast, you lot get stuck into Thomas Party, and I think, yeah, yeah, you're lucky I wasn't on. Do you know what I mean? But then I started to look at it more deeply and think, okay, what, what's going on here? In this game particularly, with our centre-backs being so quick and sharp, Thomas Party in front of them, almost like a triangle, everyone else can go. So Tommy is no longer in a 3-2-5. He's like, he's one line-up. Nuno's everywhere on that left-hand side because he's so energetic. So that side's taken care of. So those two almost cradle the team, right? much like wing-backs do with a with a back three, shall you say. And then Sambi's now the all-action midfielder with Odegaard sharing a little bit of that role and Smith-Roll sharing pieces. And suddenly we got people in those lanes up the pitch and territory-wise, because our centre-back was so comfortable in possession, because whether they want to carry it or slowly build up, draw people onto them, pass it, drop off, receive it back, pull your forward, pull your forward, switch. You know what I mean? We've got such... I'm so impressed with our back five. I keep saying it, but I'm so impressed with them because they can move the ball. They can move the ball with both feet. They can drive. They can they can drop off. They can receive. They can play high. They can do low blocks if they want to. They're tall. They're athletic. They're technical. I love it. And then even the goalkeeper's got good feet. Right, so we got so many options in phase one of our build-up. So Thomas Party now is playing a boring role in front of the back two, sitting there, and we should maybe rather than be judging him on vertical passes and final entry carries, we should be judging him maybe on loose ball duels mm. because that's where he is. Right, second ball player, get it, recycle it, regain, retain, move it on to the other players. That's not what we bought him for. But Granite Shaka not in the team. Potentially, that's what's happening there. So, back to your idea of football, Elliot. I know you love to see both fullbacks moving up the pitch and then getting to the byline, for example. It's massively important that f- f- we have that cradle, whether it be Tierney and Saka doing it, cradling the team, or whether it be our fullbacks cradling the team, allowing our most dangerous players to come inside. It's fine, really, but that's giving you your territory that you love, your zone 14 pressures that you like. Mm. It's giving you all that lovely Arsene Wenger football that you grew up with, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so you're probably thinking, this is a great game for me. This is brilliant. Mm. I but <laughs> I think it's a, it's a development for us. And maybe some of the players that we have bought have allowed us to do this now. And maybe our eyes need to look at the game and the roles in the game and then we look at the players and how they perform in that role that's prescribed for them on, on that day. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? I think one of the things that I feel held us back under Arteta early on was that the system shifted. And there was the back three phase that we went through. There was a 4-2-3-1, a 4-3-3. There was Shaka dropping in the left back. There were all these little iterations of it. And I didn't know what he wanted to do and what he wanted to stick with. And this season, since the transfer window closed. I think we have a pretty clear plan and everything is just little variations on that. And as a result, to me, Tim, the players look a lot more comfortable knowing where they need to be, where each other's going to be. And then what that allows, you know, there, there was this there was this criticism levied at Arteta and, and I, I've levied it, I believe, at some point that it's a bit too robotic. But now that the system is clear and the players seem comfortable in it, he's picking... I don't want to say the exact same 11, but a pretty consistent 11. 
he's able to allow little variations. So we're seeing things like we saw for the first goal where Saka can switch and pop up on the left. And Saka is now combining with Smith Rowe and Tabarez instead of being stuck out on the right, which tends to be more of an isolated position because Tomiyasu won't overlap as much and go to the left where he can have a little more variation. And we see the beautiful first goal come from that. So do you think that now that we have found a system that seems to have stuck a bit, and a fairly consistent 11, I realize Odegaard came back in for Lacazette, but otherwise unchanged, has meant that we're starting to see a little of that freedom, a little of that self-expression because the players understand their roles. I mean, do you think that, that step one is now done and we're getting to that step two? 100%, yeah. And this is one of the kind of key markers you'd have been looking for after the transfer window, right? Where um, all that kind of confusion that that we had at least... Um, after you know, b- before this season, that once once you buy six players in, and you're pretty you're starting pretty much all of them, then we expect to see uh, something that with a uh, with a bit more clarity. And I think that's mm-hmm. exactly what we've got. And I was thinking earlier as well about you know just thinking about I guess challenging some of my assumptions about Arteta, what he wants, Arteta ball, etc. Um, one of the things we don't really complain about anymore is that slow build up. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, exactly what Clive was describing in terms of the uh, the defenders we've brought in, and and Ben White and and Gabriel's um, gotten much better um, at progressing the ball, and I, I guess having a player like Lukonga instead of Xhaka as well, um, whether that improves your build up, that's open to debate. But I think it it probably speeds it up just because they're slightly different types of player, and and and, and I guess also one of the things that when you look at that Brentford game, what was really predictable about that Brentford game on the opening day, it was almost comical, the Xhaka to Tierney thing. And I, I'm not I'm not getting stuck into either player because I still probably regard them as first choice players and, and important players in this team who will who will come back in eventually. I, d- I don't think it was entirely their fault that day. I think there were a lot of pieces missing, but it, w- it was just so predictable, the, the Xhaka to Tierney thing. And, and there's, there's kind of something else going on um, in terms of our build-up. So I, I do think that Ben White's really added to it. I do think that Gabriel's gotten a lot better. I think the fact that Tavares can drive inside and outside really opens up some angles for us. The fact that he can come in on that right foot, like he did for the goal, by the way. Um, you know, a, a lot of left-backs aren't standing in the inside forward position and then playing a reverse pass with their right foot. So, Things have varied up a bit. I still have an overall question about chance creation overall, about that last little bit. Um, but I guess you you start to get more trust that that bit will be fixed because we've kind of... Um, I mean, maybe it's overstating it to say it's completely fixed. But, you know, we're much better in the build-up now. We're no longer the team that takes an absolute age to move the ball from back to front like we're getting it there quickly enough and so I guess what happens in that last 20 yards of the pitch that there's still you know it's not terrible or anything but there's still a question mark about volume there I think but but definitely a lot of things have improved and again like just look at as much as the players that are playing look at the players that aren't playing mm. like like Callum Chambers, what happened to him? He was <laughs> he he was starting every game from March to the end of the season. I, I'm not even sure he's on the bench anymore. Um, you know, Rob Holding does, and and again, like a lot of this is is just because we're not in the Europa League. But there, there's a lot of players who just aren't playing um, at the moment, and that and that tells you who his guys are. 
And so I think it's reasonable to surmise that this is a much cl- this is much closer to what Arteta wants. But what's the one area of the pitch where they aren't his guys yet that he's bought forwards? So Smith Rowe and Saka have come in um, through Hale End. I think you can definitely assume that they are his guys. He plays another game, so <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but Lacazette, Pepe, Abamyang, he didn't buy any of those guys, mm. and because we spent so much money on them, we're waiting to bleed them out a little bit. We're waiting for them all to go, so he can buy the attackers he wants now. There's a caveat there because he still gave Abamyang a contract, um, and that kind of makes him Abamyang his guy as well. And and I'm sure we'll have a discussion about um, whether he really is uh, the guy in this team anymore. But I think we are we are getting much closer um, to what to what Arteta probably wants, and it, and it is reassuring for me because. It, it's different to what we were seeing last year and he's dropped the let's just whack a hundred crosses in and let's take ages and we need at least 30 passes before we score a goal and and I mean I know there were a lot of passes in the build-up to the first goal but it, it just seemed like you know we made like a like a nice triangle uh for example on the left hand side in the build-up to that and that you're right <laughs> yeah. there does seem to be better muscle memory um as a result and look I mean there are going to be games that we win in transition like we did with Spurs. But I want to be clear about something. If you were bored by the first half of this game, that's okay. It was a little boring. But these are the games that you're going to win more often. The transition games where it's back and forth a little bit and you create two openings on the counter and they create a couple and you hope to edge it, that's going to go against you a lot. This game finished 2.9 to 0.2 on XG. That's what you want. 26 shots. You know, I mean, it just reads Scott's by the numbers column because... It has everything you need in there. Basically, all the stats are our best or close to our best when it comes to shots, territory, possession, shot suppression. So yeah, John Joe Shelby gets a shot from 22 yards and Ramsdale makes an incredible save. Occasionally that happens. Unfortunately, I've seen Tottenham Hotspur, we know what we think of them, beat Manchester City on games where the full-time whistle blows and he goes, how on earth did that happen? Sometimes you get super unlucky. But dominating territory and taking all the shots and suppressing the opposition, even if it's a bit boring at times, eventually, because of the amount of concentration and work and effort that it takes to stay organized in those games, eventually, you know, you are going to get your reward. And so we played a little bit without a net, but we did push them back and dominate and eventually create the openings. Obviously, Aubameyang misses a sitter, which isn't great. We scored two wonder goals. The team also, I mean, the more they get to play this way, the more they will get to figure out solutions. But Clive, if we are going to play this way more against the weaker teams, and there are few teams as weak as Newcastle, which is hilarious, but maybe not for long, then the center forward does become more of a question. You and I talked about this offline a bit, but if you look at the top three teams that we really feel have cut themselves adrift from the rest of the league, none of them really play with a big space running behind striker. I mean, Chelsea had one in Werner last season and they decided it wasn't a fit and went and got a guy who can do, well, I mean, he can run in behind Lukaku, but he's he's a focal point. Liverpool play with drop-in focal point type strikers and Manchester City don't even have a striker. They have, you know, Bernardo Silva, a guy, a guy who will be more of a, a connector, you know, more of a playmaker. And so we see these teams, what do they want to do? They want to get it to zone 14, then pop it out to the wings, then make the second man run. In fact, our biggest chance of the game, the Aubameyang miss, comes from a second-man run from Smith-Rowe. A really nice header, by the way. Um, Smith-Rowe, another second-man run where he strikes the ball really cleanly but you know, uh, doesn't get the goal. Like there's just There is a feeling for me, and Tim alluded to it, that forward is the next position that has to be solved. And I think it's not just a quality and age thing we have to change. It's a style thing. So 
How do you think the striker component fits into chance creation, especially if we're going to start to dominate territory and possession games like we did in this one? Yeah, I think the striker component is massively important to build up. So let's, I keep saying there's, there's different types of games. So if you look at Liverpool game, it's really it's a really interesting game to watch again. And I'm going to rewatch it again because none of us felt, apart from me as an idiot, that we'd win up there. Right? So um, so why are we going to Liverpool thinking we're not going to win? And we know they're older and better than us. But the game is really interesting. They press us right into our box. So in, in two of our three top passing combinations, Ramsdale was in them. So that tells you where our passing was, right in our box. But actually, for Liverpool, in three of their top four passing combinations, Alisson was in them. So it's a different game. The pitch is massive. When they have it, we're pushing them back, and we're pressing them. And we have it, they're pressing us right into our box. And so that phase two build-up, I call it, that ability to connect and set is really important against the very best teams. The very best teams. I was talking to Scott earlier, I was talking to you earlier, earlier, and I'm trying to work this out. When it goes, when our phase one with our keeper and his great feet and distribution and our centre backs, spot on. Our full backs are accelerators. One touch gone. Tommy Asu never more than two touches. It goes out of his feet. Bang. Into the next line, into Saka, where he turns around, escape artists, we're off. When it goes into that Odegaard Lacazette spot, I'm not convinced we're setting the play and connecting the play with the most efficiency. And because of that, we're not getting phase three attack. We think going to give us our big chance numbers, our creation numbers, our penalty box entry passes, and all those stats that you're reading for your head now, Elliot. Mm-hmm. We're not getting enough of them against the best sides. So against Newcastle, we do it like, because they're crap. Right, we can do it like we can play it around. We can just leave it to the back two, one in front. We're going to look back on this conversation and laugh, Clive, in a couple of seasons when they're on 100 points in, yeah, in April. When, when they're not crap, right? They bought everybody. Right? Yeah. And, and, and so we can put two defenders there, big space defenders, one in front. You can travel behind the fullbacks and loose ball collect and go again and just turn them around and take them. But against Liverpool, we couldn't get out on occasions. Against Brighton, we couldn't get out. And because of that, players are disappearing so we're now questioning Odegaard because he hasn't got a setter around him right so Aubameyang's off somewhere on the left space trying to keep people back but no one's convinced by him so people are not double marking him anymore which means somewhere else is getting overloaded that's normally the lack of Odegaard space we're smashing us there because they know once we come out of there and we escape out of Saka and we escape out of Smith Rowe once we get out of there we're a good side so connect onto them quickly, smash them, get after them. Fabinho, Thiago showed us what, our, where we're good. Do you know what I mean? They got hold of us and stopped him. And everyone said, let's get Odegaard back in. You know, so immediately our brains go to the last event. I call it event, event analysis. That's why people wanted Sambi dropped and wanted um, Nuno dropped. Because it was the last bad pass they did. Yeah. Yeah. was our memory. That's not analysis. We rewatched the game, and we saw that Nuno was brilliant in that first half. Man of the match in the first half. Yeah. yeah. So analyze the game as, a, as an entirety, right? Not just the last pass, the last bad thing they did. Look at why, what's happening. And Tim alluded to perfectly their reaction to an error, which I guarantee you, every one of these players will make one day. Do you know what I mean? It's your reaction to that and how you recover. And still, are you still brave? Do you still want it? Right? So I think for Arsenal as a whole, that that setting of the play, that connection, 
when it gets to that middle part of the pitch, is the key to us opening up versus the best sides. And I don't think we have that centre-forward player to do that yet. And whether it's a centre-forward or whatever you want to call it, there's not enough security there against the very best teams. I'm talking, take it into a phone box and it comes out with you in possession. You know, with bodies and elbows flying <laughs> and you've still got it and we can go again. And they now have to react to the fact we've we've escaped the press, we've escaped the fact they've tried to pin us and we're out there into spaces and we're off and running with energy. And that's the future of, of us. That's the next phase to get to the Liverpool and the cities. That is the next phase. And I think it's in the transfer market, mate, if I'm honest with you. It's not quite here yet. Yeah. There's there's gonna have to be some replacement that still happens. There's gonna have to be some some changing of the guard, even though there's a big changing of guard in the summer. I don't think anyone would say that that project of of changing the the personnel is is done yet. I want to get to the great performances because there are a couple that really deserve the credit, and I want to purr over the goals uh, as well as a couple other bits and pieces. But if we're talking about great talent, which we are, then we can talk about another way that you might be looking at great talent. That's right. I can tell you one right now. You want an all-star team? We need one on the pitch. You need an all-star hiring partner. In this case, you need Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible. Maybe we'll include them in our transfer content in January. Because you can do it all. Attract, interview, and hire all at Indeed. Don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. <clears throat> Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessment, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can even invite them to apply right away. I wonder if Arsenal has used this for, you know, director of football or striker. Be curious. You know, something to think about. Get started right now with $75 sponsored job credit. A $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash vision. Get a $75, easy for me to say. You know, someone said I should talk slower. And while I've never really thought about it, it might not be a bad idea. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash vision. Indeed.com slash vision. Offer is valid through December 31st. Could just say through the end of the year. Those are both the same thing, by the way. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. All right. Clive, is that enough of that? Yeah, it's cool. That's some professional. Well done. Yeah. But, you know, as, as professional as I'm going to do. Tim, let's talk good performances, great performances. I want to call one out that maybe wouldn't be the one first top of mind in a game like this where we pretty much dominate and create all the chances and stuff. But I, I think if we don't get to it, it would be a shame. And that's Benjamin White. I thought mm -hmm. Benjamin White was good. And, you know, the manager talked about needing to accelerate the play from the first phase, starting with the defenders. And when we did that, we got better. I think some people think oh, the first half was dull and the second half was good. I actually think those last 10 minutes or so of the first half, you started to see it coming. Mm -hmm. But Benjamin White was definitely the instigator from the back. So should we, should we pay a little credit to him? Because I think it's a game where it'd be easy to overlook him, but that'd be a shame. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think he's um, he's really he's really hit on something since that maybe that two two draw at Palace, which felt a little bit like um, maybe too much to say a reckoning for this team, but maybe like a mini reckoning for the team because I think there are quite a few players who've who've 
gone up um, half a level since then, and, and none more so than him, I think. Um, I, I think he's starting to, you know, probably just one of those things where you start to feel more part of the team, but not just part of the team. I mean, because the thing is for someone like Benjamin White is ordinarily a signing would like that would come into Arsenal and there'd be a load of senior players around you where you could um, not hide, but, you know, where you could kind of have that first couple of months just to like really fully get up to speed and acclimatise. And, uh, and I was thinking back to when Sol Campbell first arrived. Not a lot of people will remember this. He had a he had a tricky first few months, and I remember um, he made he made a big error in a game against Middlesbrough um, around <clears throat> around about this stage of the season. And I just remember like quite a few articles coming out going, "Oh, is he is has he underwhelmed? Is he underwhelmed?" It was one of those things that it was in people's minds. Then he made a big mistake, and it was like, "Right, yep, he's definitely underwhelming. He's not doing it yet." And so sometimes it, do, it does just take a little while to feel your way into a team, particularly when you've made like the big move, you know, and you've gone to a bigger club where there's there's more spotlight um, than there would be at Brighton. But I, I think he's really come on. Um, I really do. I think part of that is just him and Gabriel and Tomiyasu, for example, just playing together all the time with Ramsdale mm-hmm. behind them. I think that continuity has been really valuable for all of them because they've all played really well. Um, in that period, I mean, there, there are still aspects of Tommy Asu's game I have a slight issue with, but overall, can't really complain about his performances. But the, what what like um, has I guess surprised me about about White was, you know, I'd I'd heard about his his kind of passing range, and I do think we we've, we've seen that, but maybe not in the way that I expected. And I guess it's just because we had David Louise in that spot for a couple of seasons that. That, that was the type of thing I was expecting, you know. And you know what David Luiz was like? Basically, every time he got the ball, stride out, smash, big diagonal, pretty much every single time. And uh, and you don't get that with Ben White. I think there's a bit more variety. I think he's got that kind of fade up the line. Um, and of course, he, you know, it's him who finds Tommy Asu just before the Martinelli goal. And But what I've really liked is the kind of the dribbling out as well, because that's... Um, I've I've said this many times before, but like uh, and and more in relation to attacking players, but but the the impact of good dribbling cannot be underestimated in the modern game, where it's all so tightly choreographed, and anything that that ruins a team structure, um, anything that that makes the guy who's sitting on your number six and man marking him. Uh, makes him think, oh shit, I've got a decision to make here. Do I stay? Do I stick? Do I twist? Like those little mini decisions, they're so important. And he's starting to really force those. Um, and yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I had a tough game at Anfield, but who didn't? Um, yeah. But I, I think I think he's really come on, particularly since that, that Palace game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's easy to forget how young he is, especially by centre-back standards. So I think there's still a lot to come there. Really enjoyed yeah. that performance. And he's one of the senior players in terms of age. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, all right. Enough of this boring praising defenders. Let's get on to it, Clive. Bukayo Saka. I think there are a lot of people that have sort of looked at him. Acknowledge he's great. He is great. Thought maybe, you know, has he played a little too much football? Is he really at his best? Should Pepe get his place? You know, you hear the little whispers. And then he just goes and drops a 10 out of 10 until he gets injured, of course, of course and has to leave the pitch. Absolutely brilliant. Starts the game splitting two defenders and taking a shot early. 
and you just, you, I think you saw the full gamut of what he can do in this game. And when you're facing a low block, you need those guys who can unlock the defense with a little moment of individual brilliance, but can also move well off the ball, who can also finish. That last bit, the finishing, I think there's been some questions, but that finish is top drawer from a great run. Nice piece of in, uh, interchanging play, connected play between uh, Tavares, Smithrow, and Sack after he's given the license to switch sides. I thought it was brilliant. So for me, Sack is probably the star man in this match, and I think it is great to see it, maybe at a time when people are wondering if he'd just been a bit jaded. Do you do you think he was the standout player, and, and how great is it to see that from him? Yeah, alongside, if you're looking at influence, uh, alongside Ben White, I think Ben White is the technical leader of the team from the back end of the pitch. I think he literally is our playmaker, much like Van Dyke is a playmaker for Liverpool. I think he's that important. But when it goes forward, the guy that breaks the game open is Saka almost every time. He's the guy that jumps between two players, receives it, post up, turns around, when he should no right to turn around, keep it, get rid of it, gets it back. Final third, here we go. Um, when he's out on the outside, in between two players, here we go. Cross his left foot. Some of them are accurate, some of them are not, but the intention is always good. He faces the play much better from the right, but when he goes left, he can still deal with it because he's grown up as a left-sider, as most lefties do. You end up when you're a young player, if you've got left foot, left wing, left back, <laughs> that's where you start, simple as that, unless you're a centre-forward per se. So um, so everyone on the, every lefty can handle the ball on that side driving in. I've called him the next Clarence Seedorf. I've called him the next Raheem Sterling. I've called him lots of things. That tells you how good he could be, really. And mm. what could he be? I mean, seriously, we, we talked at the weekend, weren't we, Elliot, about you know, when Salah comes in on his left foot and he just takes a shot. Well, Salah's 29. <laughs> and when yeah. he was 20, he was probably playing for Basel. And hardly anyone knew about it. I'm just guessing there, right? So I'll check that because inevitably someone will come. Someone will tell us. Here's what he was doing. (laughs) (laughs) But he he was playing somewhere we didn't know. (laughs) You know, I don't. I don't think he arrived at Chelsea when he was 20. And he he obviously went to Rome and he came to Liverpool. So I'm not sure where he was, but he wasn't playing in a European final at 20. That's for sure. He was a buzzer. There right. you go. Oh, not a bad guess, was it? So, um, I think Five it goals, you- four assists, four goals, three assists. Yeah, not yeah. a good player. Move well, on. Oh, rubbish. Well, we should move on from him. We never. What's he going to be? What's he going to be? What's he going to be? Rubbish. And so, but we got his kid now doing what he's doing. He's basically our best player offensively, and has been for a year. And um, and this is it. I mean, I, I I love projecting on players. I love getting excited about young players. But sometimes I almost I, I get this sort of sharp intake of breath because if he's doing this at this age and he's done it consistently now for over a year, he's in the England team more or less. This is unreal, isn't it? This mm-hmm. is this is Fabica stuff, isn't it? Really, that's the levels that we talk about when it comes to influence, you know. And um, it's quite frightening. I, I keep I'm starting to think about contracts already, you know, and. We've got to get him nailed because I, I just think he's he can go to the very, very, very top of the game, in my yeah. opinion. The yeah, very, I, nowhere else at the top. I mean, he he's just turned twenty. So like it is it is easy to forget, you know. I mean, he's he's younger than Emil Smith Rowe. You know, Smith Rowe came into the team later, but he's younger. And so trajectory wise, yeah, the, the sky is definitely the limit. I don't 
I don't want to shut you out of the Bukayo-Saka conversation, Tim, but there's there's still a lot to get to here. So do you want to just quickly add on you know, how nice it is, I think, to see him do the stuff in the final third that we know he can, but maybe just hadn't quite been happening with regularity recently? Yeah, totally. And and he looked the player most likely in that period you're talking mm-hmm. about, kind of 10 minutes before half time and the 10 minutes afterwards, he, you know, he was the one really taking up responsibility on. And you, you can tell what a good player he is because no one really talks about his age anymore um, because it already feels like he's been around so long and it just doesn't feel like a factor. He's just, he's just good. And that's the end of it. Um, and and obviously great for him to get a goal as well. I think it was only his second of the season, and and the numbers in terms of end product are not great across the front players at the moment. And so it'd be really good, you know, for him particularly to to add a little bit more of that. And we saw with the finish how capable he is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he just the the confidence in the finish, and and I also think, and we'll get to this when we get to the Martinelli part. Don't don't worry, we haven't forgotten that. I mean, Tim his. His run is also really intelligent to stay on side, as is, like I said, Martinelli's. We'll get to that. But it's it's all of it. It's just good forward play. Swapping sides, seeing where the option opportunity is, exchanging passes, timing the run right, and then a, a confident first-time finish. Yeah, completely. You can just you can just see the brain working while it's all while it's all unraveling. Um, and and you know, like you said, just coming over from the right hand side, like I, I'd like to think, particularly because he was on the right hand side, which during that period was the opposite side of the dugout like I'm, I'm gonna guess he wasn't necessarily told in that moment go there go like he wasn't micromanaged to do that mm. I'm pr- you know I'm pretty sure a discussion would have been had at half time about mm, yeah feel free to to go and drift when you feel it but like Arteta didn't put him there do you know what I mean he didn't like he yeah. didn't have the puppet strings on um at that moment and and having like Smith Rowe Saka Tavares um together three guys who I think are all pretty decisive in the final third um Tavares may be too decisive sometimes but <laughs> um but you know th- three guys who you know are going to try and break the line who aren't going to you know pass backwards unnecessarily and and you're right as well with Saka staying on side because he's kind of out of the move for a little while but he makes sure he's on side just in case and then of course it opens up and and uh and and the way he took it on as well was because when when the ball first arrives at him I think he's gonna I thought he was gonna square it um but he you know he clearly makes a decision like no I had enough of this this one's going in um yeah and and sometimes you you've got to do that and sometimes like it, it really favours that. Sometimes you can over-elaborate a little bit. And, and I think for your average 20-year-old player would have, would have been looking to pass that on, um, but he wasn't. Well, let's let's come on to a, a little bit more on, on the Aubameyang thing. And by the way, the, the one thing on Tavares shooting a lot that, I, that I'll say, you know, normally I don't like long shots, pointless shots, you know, keep playing, keep trying to find the opening. But I think when you have defenses pushed way back and pushed deep, that sometimes if you take the shot well, it nicks off a leg, it finds a corner, it rebounds to to all the players in the box. So I, I don't mind shots from distance when you are camped on the edge of the final third because it can sometimes break up that low block a little bit. But, you know, some of the tavern shots were a little wild. Uh, the Aubameyang thing. So... There are two debates on the Aubameyang front. The one we've already so- sort of talked about with Clive about style of center forward that we need going forward. But the other, he's only ever going to be who he is. The other debate is whether he's bad, whether he's good, this, that, or the other thing. Is he washed? Is he, you know, is he dusted? All, all these things that you hear thrown around. And the funny thing is it seems to focus on 
the missed sitter. But missing sitters is a part of Aubameyang's game and always has been. When he was winning golden boots, he was missing sitters and penalties. Unfortunately, he does that. It's just the volume of chances he gets has often been so high that it all balances out. When he gets fewer chances and we as a team get fewer chances, you notice those misses. The one that jumps out at me more is the Emil Smith-Rowe through ball, which maybe is a touch heavy, but that electrifying, eye-catching burst over two or three yards from a few seasons ago where he gets to that and chips it over the keeper and it's a goal. In this instance, he gets to it just a bit slower and isn't able to lift it over. I think his name's Dubrovka. Is that right, the keeper's name? And then, and it's a save. So in terms of the Aubameyang performance, Tim, the and, and, and Clive, I can come back to you on this as well, but, but Tim, do you think the, the, the miss... While it's bad and it's frustrating in the moment, I was like, oh, come on, screw off. Because it, you know, you, you want to you want that breakthrough. Is it the second one, the not getting to the ball there that's more eye-catching in terms of trying to evaluate where the player is? Quite possibly, though I've got to admit, I don't remember it. So <laughs> Smith Rowe plays a really nice, delicate through ball, and and yeah. Aubameyang runs onto it. He gets to it. He tries to lift it over the keeper, but he gets to it where the keeper had already closed down most of the space. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and he, yeah. Yeah, quite possibly, quite possibly. I do think the thing is about Aubameyang, though, like, and and I guess one of the issues with his fit at the moment in this team is he's not really a play-on-the-shoulder striker either. Like, I think he really, really is just penalty box. Like, I don't Mm. think he makes those, like, stretching runs um, in behind fullbacks or anything like that. I really think he just, like, he waits to sniff out a chance. So, um, I mean, obviously, like, that acceleration it it helps to a degree and it helps in certain circumstances and if he has lost it then yeah that's a couple of goals off his tally every year but I I I really don't the more I've watched him play for Arsenal the less I've I've thought of him as a as a fast player he clearly is fast but like even when he first joined like I, I rarely see it and that's not um that's not necessarily a criticism like I just don't think he really uses it that much I just don't think he's that I think he's much more in like the Aguero Cavani uh category if indeed it's well it is a bit useful to to categorize players without leaning too much into it but like I, I really think that like his pace is almost incidental um, a lot of the time, and I really like the the chance that like the first chance he misses, like that's a Bamiang, right? He's standing like a couple of yards from goal. He anticipates he doesn't score this time. We've seen that a million times. I'd, I'd love to maybe, maybe I should look on YouTube and see if I can find his Arsenal goals back to back and just see how many of them at any point were a result of like pace or a burst. Like I know there has to be a burst somewhere because. You know, there's a lot of work a striker does before he gets the tap in from six yards, and some of it will be related to pace. But I, I just, I'm not sure how much of a factor it is because, uh, and, and I don't know. Maybe that is worrying because maybe that is a string he should have on his bow given his kind of physical gifts. But um, I, I just, at the moment, I don't see a drastically different Abamyang. I really don't. Like he's he's pressing a lot more. Um, well, well, actually, his pressing numbers are fairly consistent with what he's done every season, except for the half season under Arsene Wenger, where we we didn't press, and last season. And there were probably at least some physical mitigation for that with malaria, etc. 
um, and, and also um, the impact of there being no crowds. I think there was there was less pressing overall in the Premier League last season, and, and probably partially as a result of that. But I'm I'm just not seeing a massively different player here. What I'm seeing, and he does obviously have his responsibility in this. Like I'm just seeing a team that don't really create that much or don't get mm. the ball in the final third, uh, well, in the penalty area a lot. And I think what's possibly missing for him, because again, his numbers, I think he's got 3.4 non-penalty XG so far this season in the Premier League and he's got four goals. Factor in the penalty misses, it's five XG, four goals. Even that is broadly similar to what he usually puts up. So there's not actually that much in the numbers that tells you that there's a lot different going on except for what's going on around him and I guess like the criticism of him would be that um, and and I think this would be a persistent one throughout his career and probably why he never got the Real Madrid Barcelona move he's not like a force of nature in terms of he will not turn a game for you like single-handedly you you've got to get the ball in the area for him to be effective like if you're losing one nil and the other team has cut off his supply that's it like mm-hmm. he's not he like he's not a factor in the game at that point but i think one of the things he's possibly lost as well is i i think he's just a striker that thrives a little bit more on wide service a little bit more on cutbacks and actually at the moment we're playing like two inverted wingers in like Smithrow and Saka who aren't really playing like wingers at all on the right hand side Tomiyasu doesn't get forward quite as much um which is quite normal um, and Tin is now not playing on the left and we've got Tavares who, because he can drive inside, is doing more of the combination play, um, which is good. Uh, and that's good for the team overall. But I, I wonder if like Aubameyang, it's, it's better to have Tierney there playing on the outside, getting the ball in the box a lot more because um, I haven't looked up the numbers b- behind this, but I'm getting the impression that there are like fewer cutbacks. There's fewer of those, like it's it's we've kind of gone a little bit more central. Um, and, and again, I think that's largely good. I think we needed to do that, but we haven't got like Pepe whipping those crosses in, Tierney whipping crosses in. We haven't got like the combination to the byline type stuff going on at the moment. And I think that's the kind of service he really, really favours. And that's where his big chance comes from in this game, doesn't it? It comes from... Um, it, it, it's a wide delivery at some point. Um, I appreciate it's a rebound, but he's loitering on the it's, back it's post. Saka uh, drives to the byline, yeah. cl- uh, clips across that Smith Rowe heads really nicely. That's it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and where's he loitering on the back post? Like that, that's, mm-hmm. that's his kind of area, kind of just loitering around in the background when a kind of cross comes in or a, or a low center comes in or something. And we're doing less of that. We're going a lot more centrally. Um, and so I, I do just wonder whether there are some things that, uh, you know, this team's moving away from him a little bit. And I, I, I'd also say in his defence, like Lacazette just played four games in a row and didn't put up a goal or, or an assist. You know, Saka's on two goals for the season. Erdegaard's on one goal and no assists for the season. Like there is something that's, and I think we've discussed it already, there, there is something that's just missing in that final third. And and he might, he's probably at least partially responsible for that, but I do think he's probably partially a victim of it as well. Uh, look, I, I think this is what's really hard about, data and stats and watching the game and analyzing how it all goes because like you 
he had, I think, 1.18 expected goals in this game. If he does that every game, he's the best striker in the world, right? Like that, nobody does that. So you say, oh, that that's a good game. But there's other aspects to it. He had 27 touches. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is a low-touch player, period, especially as a striker. And so you say, if we're going to be a team that transitions, he can still be a dominant force for us. If we're going to be a team that parks on the edge of the air, you look at like a Bernardo Silva, you know, or, or whoever it is that's playing nominally you know, up front for Manchester City, and they average like 70 touches a game. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is averaging his fewest touches a game since he's been at Arsenal, his fewest attacking third touches, and his fewest penalty box touches. He's a very low-touch player. And so you're basically saying, we're not going to get in a zone 14. We're not going to get that um, focal point on the edge of the box. We're not going to be able to play central to play out to the wing. We're not going to be able to use that space as effectively to pick apart defenses. And so it is a style issue. I don't necessarily have a problem with the player as who he is so much as styles fitting certain games. And in, he is a big space player in my view. And, you know, maybe a small space player, if you think you're going to have a lot of penalty box action and you can afford to carry one guy who just kind of floats around and finds space. But I don't know if we can afford to do that, Clive. So yeah. I don't want, you know, what I, I don't want to kill him and say he had a bad game, but I do want to say 27 touches when you have all of the ball in the attacking third you're a very peripheral, peripheral, easy for me to say, influence on that game. <laughs> and that's always been who he is. He was a 31-touch player at Dortmund. But guess where all the touches were? In the box. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, it. If you, if you look at, like, just playing styles, right? And I think this is this is where it's at. So, Aubameyang, if you want to put his friend's playing style into one word, he's a finisher. That That's what he is. In this team, we're missing the... Attacking central progressor. That attacking player that centrally holds it. You mentioned Bernardo Silva. That's what he's doing at the moment. He's prog- he's, a, he's playing in a centre-forward role, but he's not a centre-forward as we know it, air quotes. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But he's, a, he's an attacking central progressor. What is Smith-Rowe and what is um, Saka? They're offensive wide progressors. So not wingers, but progressors from the... The in the half space, lane four into lane three. And so we want a Bamiyang just to finish. So by that, he's he's already cut off from the team. He's not part of the build-up. But what are we missing? We're missing a bit of build-up, aren't we? We're missing a little bit of build-up in those central areas. We're asking Odegaard to do it. He's not really that player. He's more of a playmaker from the central areas. He's not so much a central progressor. He's a playmaker. I have touches and I'll make the play for other people. So there's something missing there. I don't. I think it's a style thing. I I think oh, well, I was talking to Tim or you before the podcast, but I can see a situation quite quickly developing again, where Lacazette plays to do that central progression, and Aubameyang plays off the left. You know, and if you're going to Old Trafford, we're going to need that stickability in the middle of the pitch, and then we can sprint down the sides. You know, once we get it out there, I mean, Liverpool, their two forwards, they don't play down the middle, right? They let other people do that. I don't let that people do that work and they come in from the sides and I think stylistically the team is developing slightly away from him you know again if you want to go against the best teams we need more oomph in those central progressive areas we need that and that is not Aubameyang Aubameyang is the last touch exclamation point should have scored in this game this is a game he should score in because we're in the box we have touches we have big chances he should be scoring in this game so this is like a bad day for him you know, except my, my only pushback on that is that like he 
he had two big chances, right? So, so he, he oh, was yeah. there. Just from, yeah, yeah. well, I say it's a bad day for him, just yeah. literally because he didn't score. Right, yeah. yeah. Everything else was absolutely fine. He always does this. We don't see him next to me at the ball's in the back of the net and he's doing, he's doing a front flip, right? And so we, and we're all happy. We'll go off, off to the pub, right? So he didn't score. So now we're looking at him. Oh, he didn't score. But that's what you do. You're the finisher. So he's, ju- he's literally judged by that metric. That scoring metric. We know he's not great on setting the play. We know some of his carries and passing decisions are not great. We know he's pretty low touch, but he can finish. You know, and so if yeah. he's not finishing, we start to question his um, position in the team and his influence on the game. And that is just a striker's want. You know, that is his lot. Sorry. You know, if I'm scoring, great. If I'm not scoring, what am I bringing to the show? You know, so developing the team, I'm wondering what we're going to do going forward. Are we going to have, are we going to be like the midfielders team? Like a certain team in Manchester, you know, with, you know, those that type of setting players. Are we all thinking we need a centre forward to, to make us all feel comfortable? A big guy down the middle that can pin people and get onto the crosses that we're going to put in. I'm generally not sure that what the next phase of Arsenal is. I, I do think, I do think a, a taller, left-footed player in my head that can play in the middle and on the right would be useful. Um, we've got one, quite expensive, but he's gone missing and he's a little bit loose in his ability to keep the ball in certain spaces. So, And I do think there's a potential of a right-footer striker that can set the play but also can play in the half space on the right. So, on the left, sorry. So, Let's see what happens, how we develop, but it's going to be interesting, really. But I think Aubameyang is just caught between styles and what we need. And I think if we look at the Liverpool game, I think we realise the next phase of Arsenal versus the best may not include him. Yeah. Um, Tim, I think you need to go, but before you do, can I at least get you to say, wow, Martinelli's goal was great? Yeah, 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 it was. And um, yeah, a, a really interesting decision to bring him on as well, particularly because he doesn't usually play on the right. But um, and, and I do wonder, because as we look ahead to the Manchester United game, if Saka can't play, there's, there's a decision to make there. And you'd think it's between Martinelli and Pepe. And obviously trusting a player with um, starting at Old Trafford and the last 25 minutes against Newcastle are different things. But if... Um, maybe food for thought to leave you with. But um, if he decides to go with Martinelli, that might smooth the passage to not playing Aubameyang at Old Trafford. I think you can justify having Lacazette up front more if Martinelli, <laughs> yeah, if Martinelli's in that wide spot and he's the one making those runs into the box like this one um, that he makes uh, from a great pass from Tommy Asu. But that, 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 that might be quite interesting. And I, I wonder if those decisions for Thursday will be paired. So if it is a Bamiang, then I think we'll probably start Pepe if, but if he wants to start Martinelli, I think we might see Lacazette. But r- really great for Martinelli. I think he really needed that moment because he hasn't played a lot of football. He might not play a lot more uh, for the next month or so. Um, so I, I think he just really, I think everyone, everyone that likes and values Martinelli needed that moment, that kind of, because, I, you know, I, people's opinions like change so quickly and it's it's quite interesting like you know ahead of this like i'm sure both of you do listening to the ask cast extra but the interesting thing is the questions that come in and you know a lot of the questions are like 
will Tierney ever play again? Will Pepe ever play again? Like we, we, and, and like none of us are immune from this. We turn so quickly based on the situation. And, 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 you know, I'd already started to hear like the, is Martinelli as good as we think? Is he, oh, any, yeah. which, which, which I think is, is a fair question, but then, then it's, it quickly turns to, is he any good at all? Is he actually rubbish? Have, was all of this just an illusion? Can he actually <laughs> kick a football? Yeah. You know, it quickly like snowballs and and for him to come up with not just a goal but a really good goal like that a really great finish was was just a great reminder that this kid's still there he's still really good doesn't mean that he should be playing 90 minutes in every match yet but you know we we've got something there and I think it was it was important for Arteta because he made that call to bring Martinelli on that it worked straight away. And again, that's that's another tick for Arteta, right? That's something we've all, to varying degrees, criticised him for, not changing games from the bench, not kind of changing things up to get that goal. Did it on this occasion, so fair fucks. Yeah, and, and you know the problem, Tim, is that like, you can't win as a manager because whichever decision you make, the decision you don't make is going to be hyper-analyzed. We can't help it. Mm. Like it's, you know, we're, our brains are wired to do that. So if he brings on Pepe in that game and Martinelli doesn't play, it fuels the, he hates Martinelli fire. But by bringing on Martinelli and not Pepe, it fuels the, maybe Pepe's off in January. He really doesn't rate him fire. Now that may be true, but the point is he could only bring on one of them and whichever one he didn't bring on, there would have been life breathed into why he didn't bring the other one on. Yeah, and I guess I'd say also in closing, I quite liked Paul's point on the instant reaction that I hadn't thought of, which was we need Martinelli in January and Pepe's going to be away. So, you know, again, probably a medium-term decision that was more about the game than about more than the game that was just in front of us. Yeah, not to mention that Sack is coming off with injury and if you're trying to figure out what am I going to do maybe as soon as Thursday at Old Trafford, you might as well get a look at the kid. Uh, You have to go though, right, Tim? I do now, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, right, my well, pleasure as always, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto. You, you have to say it again. No. <laughs> my pleasure as always. <laughs> okay, thanks, Tim. Clive, before I get your thoughts on him picking Martinelli, let's just talk about the goal for a minute. Uh, NBC, who is the rights holder here in the United States, posted a video of it uh, on Twitter, and it's got all the angles. And look, the finish is absolutely sumptuous. I think uh, Tim from 7 a.m. kickoff referenced Eduardo and I, I think Eduardo's goal was the one, his first one back from the long-term injury. I want to say it was against like a Burnley or something. One of I think that's right. Um, and it was it was a volley outside of his boot. A little different, but still that's sort of a first-time, sumptuous-type finish. And, um, you know, the, the finish is, is going to get the headlines here, rightfully so, but the reverse angle of that NBC video shows you, and I love the way Paul put it, how he surfs the back line, how he doesn't just make... The, the childish run darting straight in behind, but the bent run where he surfs the back line. And I realize their left back gives him plenty of room and, and Tomiyasu's pass is quite good as well. Deserves credit for that. But I just think there's so much class in the run, obviously in the finish. So can we, can we purr a little over the goal before we talk a little about the decision to bring him on and, and the player generally? Yeah. I, 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 obviously we all love the goal, but when you look at a player, I, I try to look at what they do really, really well. And I think Martinelli's real trick is arrival, his ability to arrive into an area and then deal with the ball 
in different ways and score in different ways, whether it be head, volleys, left foot, overheads, whatever. But his arrival to where the ball is in the area. And and to be a good arriver, I don't think he can start centrally. Obviously, you can on certain days. But I think he's a, he's a wide forward that comes in from either side because he can see it, then he can arrive. And then his ability to finish off both feet, and which is crazy, right? So... I had him as my breakout player of the year and I was feeling rather stupid as we're sitting in November. He's had about one minute in the Premier League <laughs> and I'm thinking, mm. this isn't going to work out. And I was just, not say wavering, but just wondering, you know, what's going on here a little bit. And I looked at pictures of him over the weekend and he's really developing into a man. He's grown. He looks stronger. You know, he talks the language really well now with a bit of a London tinge to his accent. He's just developing as a, as a human being at, at our club. You know, and people do it at different rates, you know. Everyone's talking about Smith-Rowe appearing recently since last Boxing Day. But he's a London boy, right? He's had lots of injuries. He went abroad. He went to Huddersfield. And he's he's arrived. Here we go, 21, bang, England team. You know, the, the, the sort of the, the journey, the line, it's just different for people. You know, Saka walked straight into the first team. Cheers, thanks a lot. I'm the man. Mm. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, I'll, I'll have your shirt, Pepe. Don't worry about it. Um, sit down. Uh, and I'm playing, and that's it, right? So everyone's different. Everyone's different. And um, and Martini, although we saw some great numbers at 18, 19, he's now 20, and we're wondering, we're wondering where we fooled. But I don't think we were fooled. I think we just got to trust the people in charge of the club that they're developing this play in the right way. And we just got to sit back. They know where he is. They know how much he's grown. They know what his injury situation is. They know what the data is. They know what they want to do. We've got to sit back and wait. And now, of course, the excitement index has gone up again because we've all been reminded of these crazy finishes. You know, when you've got the goalkeeper rushing out to you, you look at nothing but the ball and you could get smashed. I mean, wow, that kid has got something special, hasn't he, really, to um, yeah. to do that. And I just like like the ones we've spoken about, how, how exciting is this, Elliot, really? Yeah. Or generally, or generally, how exciting is this, the potential of these young players? It's just... Crazy, man. It's crazy. Yeah. I, and I mean, you know what? You, you said something like we try to understand this player, analyze player. Can we also just admit, Clive, we don't know much about Gabriel Martinelli yet. He's no. young. He's played very little. He was really exciting, then got injured and was out. And I, I still don't think people appreciate that that was a major injury and he lost a lot of time at a critical point of his development and came back into a sort of chaotic and tumultuous situation in Arsenal and didn't really have a, a place that he could come in and make his own and was probably handled with a little bit of kid gloves coming back from the injury. And then there's no Europa League, so there's only so many minutes. Like, we we think he's a supreme talent, but we're still learning who this player is. The idea that any of us can have a definitive understanding of a player we've really seen so little and is at the absolute dawn of his career is silly, right? So maybe the best yeah. thing to say is he looks like an amazing talent and a natural goal scorer and... and penalty box threat, but we don't know much about him. I mean, yeah. how Saka has played more minutes this season, I think, than Martinelli has played in his Arsenal career, you know? Exactly. I mean, remember the Brentford game? I barely remember it now because I tried to erase it from my memory, but there were also <laughs> a couple of players that, you know, we lost Lacazette. Like in the preseason, preseason <laughs> game against Brentford, yeah. <laughs> we lost, we lost um, Lacazette and the Bamiang, I think, on the day of the game. And Balogun and Martinelli were thrown in. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And we sort of judged them both since then. They both didn't have great games. And you think, well, 
how prepared were they? Were they even training with the group? I think Martelli just got back from the Olympics, you know, barely did any training. In you go to the first game, Brentford's new ground being opened. And what do we do? We can only judge them what we see. So we judge them, don't we? Our Balogun, is he quite ready? He needs a loan. Martelli, is he as good as what we think he is? He's not being played. Does Arteta fancy him? We just go through these sums and add up. Mm. And I think it's it's important sometimes just to breathe, like I just did then, <laughs> just to breathe <laughs> and say, yeah, you know what? This well, Next time I see him, let's have a look again. See what he looks like. See, you know, once he sat down, see what he looks like. And um, yeah, he's now a player that we found. And this in this month of December, we need to find a few that we make. We need to find yeah. a few more because this won't work with eleven or twelve. So, what's your take on my theory that our need to read into decision making sometimes leads us to faulty conclusions? And I believe me, I'm pointing fingers at myself here because I know I do it, but like. Mm-hmm. There's the there's the tendency to look at the fact that he picked Martinelli here and it's whatever it is, seven games where Pepe's played five minutes. He hasn't really played since the Palace game um, to say, gosh, this is a spot where you would have expected he'd pick Martinelli, uh, Pepe. Instead, he went with Martinelli. Pepe's done. But again, if he had picked Pepe, we'd all be saying he really does hate Martinelli. That kid's never going to play. So he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. But I'm going to ask you anyway, do you... Do you take anything from it. You were pretty critical of, Pe- of Pepe and his sort of work and commitment in the Palace game. And to be fair to you, we haven't seen much of him since then. So is there a there there or is there no there there? <laughs> yeah, so Nuno, a couple of bad passes versus Liverpool and people write him off. I, I wasn't bothered at all because of how he played. You could see he cares massively. He wants to do well, his energy, and he, he just wants to do so well. When Pepe didn't play well against Palace, I'm telling you, I mean, I saw things where he wasn't even looking at the play as we were building up. And there, so there are bad performances and there are bad performances where you're just not engaged, you're not connected to the team. And I was really worried because I haven't seen that before. And so I don't go to every live game. Some people say I've seen it before, Clyde, blah, blah, blah. But I, I haven't seen that before. And I thought he's going to suffer for that. And he, and he has done. He's dropped away. So he now has to convince the manager that I'm, I'm back. I'm playing with the values and the principles by which you want to play. And Martelli's obviously showed that. Eddie Nketiah shows that, obviously, because he gets minutes ahead of Balogun because he's showing the right things in training, the right attitude, etc. And so when there's a chance to get him to play, he plays. And so there's a method to his madness, almost, where he holds a really high standard about how you behave and how you apply yourself, even when you're not playing. And when you are playing, you best you best be engaged in the game. You know, and and if you're not, you won't play. And so Pepe, it's up to him, right? I sometimes think we put so much onus on the manager. But if you're watching carefully, the onus is on the players. You've got to do it. If you don't do it, you don't play. It's a much better discussion to have this year with our six new signings than it was last year where we were thinking, well, he hasn't played well, but he's playing next week <laughs> because mm-hmm. the player behind him is so bad. So we're developing a bit more depth and, you know, and people are coming on board a little bit more. A great example that has been made Niles, who deserves to play. He's not playing, but when he gets a chance, I think he'll play well. You know, and mm-hmm. so it's up to Pepe to take a lesson from Mate Niles and say, you know what? I've been sat down. When I get on, I better be man of the match. And if I'm if I don't, I won't play again. And this is exactly what you want in a good side. You know, when we're playing Everton on that Monday night, we're going to need somebody to step up. 
You know, it won't be the same eleven that we played versus Man United, right? So Pepe's moment is coming, and he better be ready to take it. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be a, a problem for him, not for us, for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's some people that are like, oh, this means he's going to be sold in January. I just, I don't know. Like that seems nah, crazy mate. to me. And I mean, he's going off to the Afcon. I, I think there is something to be said about. Hey, I better get a look at Martinelli in this low pressure game since he's going to be coming into a period where I need him more and Pepe's going to be gone. So there's always different ways you can interpret this. Before I'm we just interpret it that Martelli deserved a chance ahead of him. That's what I'm thinking, mate. He's showing more in the stuff we don't see than Pepe is. And yeah. so he played him. Yeah, I, I and like that's it. and and it worked out great. And what a goal and what a moment and what a player. And I think Tim hit on it exactly right, which is the speed with which we will say someone is going to be absolutely the next superstar and then forget about them and say that they are not even good is just crazy with these young players. And that I don't have a problem with people assessing young players and having an opinion up on them, but the, the speed with which we adjust that and update that opinion based on single performances is a little bit alarming. I mean, in general, I think all of the way we react to football is in such a short news cycle now. And and look, that's just the world we live in. I don't think it's anyone's fault. It, it just, you know, it is. the I mean, speed at which our society is moving. Did you see the Graham Potter stuff? On, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that tells you everything, doesn't it? Brighton's sitting there, four points, whatever. They're a good side. They give us a slap, didn't they? <laughs> good side. <laughs> um, they got a club that's moving forward, and they got a lovely training ground, lovely new ground. They got a progressive young manager. They got wonderful XG numbers last year, and then it's like, okay, that's not enough. We're going to boo you. Yeah. You draw at home. I mean, this needs to. Well, I can't. You can't tell yeah, people well, how I to mean, feel. Yeah, but I get that, it. That, that, I mean, that doesn't feel right to me. I don't feel there's right an immediacy to, to things now that I think sometimes obscures the ability to analyze things more comprehensively. So, some a lesson for all of us. Before we go, I mean, I guess there's there's two more things we should touch on quickly. I, I just really quickly want to talk Tomiyasu because we haven't much. I think it's a better game. I, I think it's an interesting Tomiyasu game because I think we saw a really good pass for the goal that he deserves credit for. Some really interesting involvement in the attacking third and maybe some limitations to his attacking third play, you know, versus what we saw on the other side, maybe with Tavares, although very different players, but we're seeing Tomiyasu being given a license to be more up the pitch. And so I'm curious what you think about that evolving role and what he's able to contribute in that area, because we think of him, or I think of him as more of a defensive fullback, but he's definitely being given license now. Yeah, I've got, I've got a Twitter thread in my head. I'm going to do it a bit of it now. It. Just yeah. just while you... Well, now, wait till the pod's over. Yeah, yeah. And it's really about comparing players and what they look like and what they offer. And I've always looked at Tommy Asu and thought, he's a bit like Benjamin Pavard. He's a tall, right-sided, who can play in a three, can play as a centre-back, but doesn't really want to because he's quite leggy and can move. He moves the ball quickly, protects the right side of the pitch and stabilises the team, but can get forward when he needs to with quality. On the other side, we've got our Alfonso Davies in Nuno Tavares, right? So they pair off with each other perfectly because one is just crazy aggressive, crazy forward-thinking. Tierney's the same. And so when we were buying Tommy Asso, we we did our bits, did we, on him? And I've always wanted a, a centre-back right-back, as you know. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so you know, I would have liked, you know, without knowing Tommy Asso, the player that I was, had my eye on was Ben Godfrey at Everton, who was who I think would be a really good centre-back right-back. 
you know, and um, Everton used him in the middle of the pitch at the moment, and he's getting spun around, his career's going downhill. But when he was right back, I think he's very quick, I think he fixes on people. So I like this type of player, Tommy Asu. I really like the players that secure us in that right side. And as soon as you see Ben Wright, you think we he needs that type of right back, without a doubt. He doesn't need a right back that's a million miles up the road. And people thought, because Ben White played with um, Tariq Lamptey, that's what he needed. I never thought that. I thought in the back four, for him to be a back four defender, which, by the way, people weren't sure about when he arrived, he needed a stabiliser. And that's what Tommy Asu is. What surprised me a little bit is the certainty of his distribution. One or two touches, that's it. He recognises the ball shouldn't stay with him too long. And he's always got a picture. He has always got one. But he's got the ability to get out of whatever situation he's in. So if he's forced into his left foot, no problem. If he's forced to go out on the outside, no problem. I can play inside my left foot, inside my right foot, or I can take you on the outside. And he's not slick smooth, but mm. he's decisive and quick. And that certainty allows build-up, right? So it allows the players around him to know exactly what he's going to do. So you best be moving. If the ball's travelling to him, you best be moving because you're getting it. You know, so that's the automatic movements that you really need to see. So I really rate him. I think he's been a major, major addition to our team. I've never felt stable, you know, until he's come along. He's added disability. So you're looking at loose ball defensive players. Him and Gabriel and Party are those. They're the ones that win the races. You've got your playmaker there, sitting there, all these bodies smashing people all around him. Ben White saying, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll take it out. Look at my shorts, nice and clean. There you go. And you lot can have all the broken bodies around you. I'll get this team going. It's a lovely balance we've got going on there, I must admit. Yeah, and, and a lot more to come. Uh, bits and pieces, do you think Martinelli should have been given a penalty? I mean, for the for the shoulder to face. <laughs> yeah, I, I did listen to. I went for my dog walk today, and I listened to Andrew nearly get upset about that. For for Andrew, that is, <laughs> he was really by upset by his standards. Yeah, <laughs> and I think I think he raises a good point about the blow to the head. I think that's the thing. There, we want shoulder to shoulder contact, but it was the aggression to the head that I didn't really like. And when you look at that a second time, you think, well, I don't look right. You know, well, he's, yeah, he said something I, that, you know, the best people, Clive, make you think about something totally differently. And An Andrew made me think of it differently because when I watched it the first time, I thought the defender tried to go shoulder to shoulder, yeah. but the guy he was going with is just shorter. So the shoulder caught him in the face instead of the shoulder. Nah. But Andrew made a point that really made me think, which is if I go for the ball with my foot, don't get the ball and get your ankle, it's a penalty. Yeah. If I go sh for your shoulder and don't get your shoulder and get your head, it's a penalty. So, I, yeah, I think in that respect, he's spot on. He, he, so, maybe the defender's trying to go shoulder to shoulder, but it isn't shoulder, nah. shoulder, shoulder to jaw. <laughs> the, the, the defender knows that this Martel is sharp, right? It's going to do him. So I'm going across to smash him. But I'm going to go across with my shoulder to smash him. But really, I'm trying to leave one on him. Mm. That's what I'm trying to do. And and Andrew being a centre-back knows exactly now yeah, what I'm talking about, right? I'm going to leave one on him, right? But I'm going to put my shoulder there because I can, I can then say shoulder, shoulder, 50-50. But really, what I'm trying to do is use excessive force. And that's what the referee's got to decide. Was there excessive force there? And I think there was. And once you hit someone's head like that, you know, I think you've got, to do, you've got to do something. I mean, it didn't cost us anything in the game, but that's one for a referee review discussion. 
what would you do in this situation? And I think it's excessive force to their head. And for me, that's a penalty. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm happy to have that given as a penalty. So we'll go back and uh, and make that 3-0. So, all right, last thing. We're going to do a lot of hashtag content this week, so we don't need to go into it in full. But with the trip to Old Trafford, I mean, this feels like – this to me is as big a fixture as we're going to have this season. Because if we can somehow win this game, and I'm not saying that saying we is a foregone conclusion. We have not gone to Old Trafford and won much. But we've done it and done it recently. And they don't quite have their new man in yet. Um, if we do it, I think we go eight points clear of them and they only get to play us once more at the Emirates. And so you put yourself in a position where one of the teams you think could be fourth is in a really big hole to try to come back and finish above you. It It is an opportunity. Now, I'd take a draw, of course, but a win here, I think suddenly tilts the way I look at the top four race to making us potentially even a favorite for it. And I realize the AFCON is going to change the landscape completely, but... I don't know what Saka's availability will be. Um, there's some big decisions to be made. I mean, is he going to bring Tierney back in for his first start in ages for us in that spot? You know, is he is he going to try to bring Lacazette back in after Odegaard got the, the fun game against Newcastle? So, again, we'll do a deeper dive, several deeper dives this week, but do you have an early inkling as to what he should what he should do in the stakes of this game? Yeah, I've got a li- I've got a little inkling for um well I look at I look at these next two games actually. We've got Maynard and Everton. Two ga- away games up north within a week. Mate, if we can get four points in those games, that'd be great. If we can get six, we're on. Oh oh yeah, I mean look, if you get yeah, but like the funny thing is if you said we could only get four, I would take the three at old Trafford. That's the one that to me. Because Everton are not finishing anywhere good this season. They're, they're dead. Yeah, well, you got to look at it and say to yourself, Man United still got a half decent. I say that without looking at a half decent home record. And it's still Man United, right? So mm-hmm. when other teams go there, they're not, they're not going to get too many points there, right? So whereas at the moment, Everton are all over the place. Other teams will take three points there. So we yeah. need to take three points there. That's, yeah, that's, that's how you look at it, right? So, so I would still, you know, be fine with the point at Manchester United. But if we were to get six from six in the next two games, again, this is a step forward. I thought the Watford game was big for me because it was the sort of game where we were expected to win and we just we just snuck it and we won that game. That's the sort of game we used to drop points in. That was a big game. That gave us a little bit of breathing space for Liverpool. And then we doubled down against Newcastle and made sure that Liverpool didn't cost us anything but three points. Right. So now we've got two away games. And when we've done this in the past, I remember years ago, we went to Man City and Everton, lost them both. The season crushed after that because we were run off the pitch in both games. And I and I remember it. And I think this is something that Arsenal need to do better. Two games away. We've got to get points from them. We can't just give these games up. I do think we need to, you know, from a playing point of view, I think we need 11 players there. I know it sounds stupid, but we can't carry anybody. No passengers in these games. They're going to be quite high energy. Manchester United are going to fancy themselves. They've got a new manager. They're going to be pressing. Well, we're not bad at the back, so I don't mind who we play there. So I'm not worried about that. But when we get into that phase we're talking about, that phase two, we got to keep it. we got to keep it and then shake their fragile confidence. And so I think Lacazette plays in this game. I think Aubameyang may play in this game. You know, he may play from the left. I think Lacazette definitely plays in this game. We've got to keep that ball in that area 
and then really test them. And so, yeah, and, and Everton, you know, I watched them at the weekend. They're not great. Rafa's really under it. I think they've got Merseyside Derby coming up. We That's not a up. coach they need an excuse to lose patience with. Well, <laughs> uh, how are we not playing two new majors in a row, right? Three, that could three new managers in a row. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, so this could be a, a problem, right? Being the end of players on the pitch, not the majors, but it could be a problem. Manchester United have finally done something correct. Uh, they're putting some structures in place for people that know football. And not people like Darren Fletcher, who's a good centre mid, is your technical director. I mean, what the hell's that about? Right. So, what is he um, doing on the touchline during the match? What is going on there? <laughs> you, know, and, you know, people question Eddie's experience, but at least he's done the job before. Yeah. You know, he's in a national team, for God's sake, not any old national team. Yeah. You know, the national team. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so, yeah, what's that? I'm working beautifully highlighted yesterday. Jobs for the boys, right? Jobs for the mm-hmm. boys. And, um, that can't continue. So, Maynard will sort themselves out and we'll all be in trouble in a few years' time when they do. But until then, we've got a chance to take them. And Michael Carrick fans himself as a coach. They're going to be quite energetic. we got to match that energy, keep the ball when we turn it over, get our three passes, get into attacking shape, and take them. They're not that great. They've still got Eric Bailly and Lindelof, mate, and there's a goal there waiting for us. They've still got wan who's great on one-on-ones on the outside, but anything across his face of him, he's useless. And um, and Alex Tellez, well, he's, he's not the answer for me. So there's still vulnerabilities there at the back. We just need to get there. When we do, I think we'll be absolutely fine. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll take the nice, smooth 10-0 victory, as you know. Um, Let's leave it there. Lots and lots and lots of stuff to come this week, and there will be more about that uh, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. I hope you're doing great. It's, uh, yeah, it's getting into that busy time of the year, though, and the games will be coming thick and fast, as we always say. Clive's on Twitter, Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank thank you very much. My name is Billy Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Um, We will... uh, Definitely try to keep you updated over on the Twitters and and all over the place on what's coming this week. So keep an eye out there and uh, more on the possible watch party and definitely a live stream before United. So as I said, lots to come. We love you. We'll talk to you after Arsenal 10, United though.